You're listening to a teaching from Sundown Church. We hope you encounter God through our podcast and experience freedom in your life. The Lord has just, uh, over the last few days, has done some unusual things. and I, I, I don't even know how to describe that anymore. Uh, based on the things that he teaches and the things that he shows and the way he just astounds me. One of those things that I realized this week, and it's strange how we come to these moments, that when, when God said to Adam in Genesis, in those early chapters, in chapter 3, when God says to Adam, where are you? Because of how we have been taught, because it's so hard to clear our minds of how we have been taught, we hear that question and make one assumption, that God in some manner was frustrated and God in some manner was disappointed. But when you begin to truly understand the heart of God and you can kind of get behind that heart and look at situations differently... What's, what is God's heart toward Adam and Eve? His children. What he was really saying in that moment was, Adam, if you think you can do it without me, I'm telling you, I can't do it without you. That's amazing to me. For God to say to Adam, Adam, you may think you can do it without me, but I'm announcing to you as God, I cannot do what I need to do without you. See, that's a different heart. That's God saying, you matter this much. I designed this. I have such great purpose for you. I have such great purpose in you, Adam. I need to know where you are. Because what I need to do, I can't do it. Without you. See, we know that's true because Jesus, over in Luke chapter 19, it says that Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost. He came pursuing us because there was great purpose in us, there's great purpose for us, and there's great purpose that He wants to display through us. I spoke to you last week about this very relevant truth, and it is so significant, not theoretically, not conceptually, but actually, that we were designed so that in our humanity that we would never be able to trust human effort. There would never be enough human effort that we could put against a problem or a challenge or a situation and find victory. That we were so designed by God that we would always be power-assisted. And I talked to you about this changeover from When we actually got power steering, my 1968 Firebird didn't have power steering. But if you got that thing up to 100 to 120, it kind of had its own power steering. It was real easy to turn the faster you went. That's why I drove so fast. I, I really didn't drive that fast. It was just easier to steer the faster you went. Man, when they got came up with that power steering, you could stick that your finger in that steering and go like this, because it was designed to be power assisted. 
We were designed in the heart of God to be power assisted. And we get to read in Acts chapter 2 where that power came. By the giving of the Holy Spirit, we get to read it. So we were, we were absolutely designed. But I want to read a scripture to you kind of as an introduction into what I really want to share this morning. From Hebrews chapter 11, I shared this last week back in Bible study. Hebrews chapter 11, this is that, in Hebrews, this is the list of the hall of fame of faith. He's already talked about, when I, where I'm going to pick up reading, he's already talked about Abel, he's talked about Enoch, he's talked about Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Joshua, Rahab, and then he adds these to the list. I want you to listen to this list. And what shall I say more? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah, of David also and Samuel and of the prophets, who through faith, listen to this, they subdued kingdoms, they wrought righteousness, they obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trials of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. That's quite a list. That's what they did. Those were the accomplishments of this list, all of them. But verse 39 says, And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. I find that absolutely and stunningly amazing that these people of the Old Testament, by the faith that they were assigned, accomplished these things. And then the writer of Hebrews says of that amazing group, but they did not have the better thing that you and I have. What is that better thing? Well, you can read unbelievable things about what it says this promise is, but I'm not confused and we shouldn't be either because we can read in Colossians chapter one that the great difference between that Testament and this Testament was over here. They heard from God and they were obedient, but the promise was that when Jesus came, when Jesus died and dealt with our sin, then that God that could only function with them on the outside, now that God would be able to indwell us. That was the promise. What separates us from that? We have an indwelling God inside of us today because we were designed to be power assisted. Now, who is that God? We were not confused. Acts chapter 2 tells us it was the receiving of the, of the Holy Spirit given to us after Jesus' death. What is that better thing that we were given? And, and imagine if they did that over here without power steering and they were able to accomplish those things, 
shutting the mouths of lions, turning to flight those enemies of the aliens, all of those things that were done without power steering, what should our lives now under power assistance look like? Wow. If we could only imagine for a second, begin to dream again what those possibilities are in this New Testament and under this new in better way. They were not given what you and I have been given. There's an introduction. I want us to go from there, though, to Luke chapter 20. Again, the Lord has shown me some things in some passages that I never had I'd never seen before. I don't know how they will strike you. I don't know if you'll leave like I don't understand the big deal or wow. Thank you, Father, for showing me this as well. Luke chapter 20, I'm going to begin reading in verse 19. This is a story that we know very, very well. And the chief priest and the scribes the same hour sought to lay hands on him. And they feared the people for they perceived that he had spoken this parable against them. And they watched him and they sent forth spies which should feign themselves just men that they might take hold of his words so they might deliver him under the power and authority of the governor. And they asked him, saying, Master, we know that thou sayest and teachest, and teachest rightly, neither accepts thou the person of any, but teach the way of God truly. Is it lawful for us to give tribute unto Caesar or no? But he perceived their craftiness and said unto them, Why tempt you me? Show me a penny. Whose image and superscription hath it? They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which be Caesar's, and unto God the things which be, of, be God's. And they could not take hold of his words before the people, and they marveled at his answer, and they held their peace. We fully understand that there were those who were, who had, who were posing as just and honorable men who were simply there to be inquisitive of Jesus. The whole picture was painted in honor. It was painted in justice. They were there under a lie, under a pretense to understand his identity and his purpose. But we know, as he knows, because of the story, that they were there under false pretense at the request of the Pharisees who were, who were routinely seeking to try to find a way to arrest Jesus or bring him before the governor. So they watched him. They plotted against him. They watched for that moment when Jesus would make a misstep. And so they began to try to trap him. And what we find here is one of those traps. These are my grandchildren. I believe they must have spent some significant time plotting this trap. I don't think this one happened on the spur of the moment. I think they had plans. I think they had schemes and they were watching for this moment. So they begin with this mocking statement, this false tribute to Jesus. And they ask him saying, Master, we know that you teach only those things that are right. And neither do you accept the person of any. Some aren't higher and some lower to you. We know that. But you teach the way of God 
truly. So we know that they were mocking him. They didn't believe it. They weren't saying it because they wanted to say it. I still believe it's quite amazing that these men who had been following Jesus for this time still didn't understand that, that he knew exactly what they were up to. I marvel until I realize that we still do the same thing. We're still doing the same thing to Jesus that, that, that they were doing to him back then. So the question was designed so that no matter the answer that Jesus gave, he was going to be in trouble. So they asked the question, is it lawful for us to give tribute unto Caesar or no? So this is what he knew. He knew that the Jews were tired of paying the Roman tax. He knew that they had been overtaxed for a long time. So if he says, yes, it is right for us to pay taxes, that, he, that the Jews would be mad at him and turn against him. Or if he said, no, you're not supposed to pay to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, then they could arrest him and take him before the governor. So he understood the significance of the trap. But he knew their scheme. His answer, however, was so much more dynamic, so revealing than what we first notice. He not only turned away the question, and he did it with truth, he revealed a powerful truth about who He revealed a powerful truth to those of us who call him Savior and who call him Lord. So let's look at his response. But he perceived their craftiness and said, why tempt you me? Show me a penny. Again, isn't it kind of odd that Jesus didn't have a penny on him? Creator of the universe, he didn't have a penny on him. He asked for a penny. Whose image and picture has it? They answered and said, Caesar's. He said unto them, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render unto God the things are God's. What was his profound answer? How will you know what belongs to Caesar? What did he point at? How will you know what belongs to Caesar? It will have his image on it. How do you know what belongs to God? will have his image on it. Jesus himself, Hebrews chapter 1, says that he was the expressed image of the Father. You and I as believers are the image of God. Does it matter what our hands do? Does it matter what our mouth says? Does it matter where our feet go? As believers, we are the image of God. But I want to show you something else. Why do you think that I teach you in the terms that I teach you that, that the cross provided such a complete work? Nothing was missed, nothing undone, nothing untouched. Why do you think I, I tell you that everyone's sins are forgiven? Again, I'm not trying to tell you that everyone's saved, but I'm telling you that the cross destroyed all sin. All, everyone's sins are forgiven. When they believe that, they become a convert. Why do I speak of these universal realities of God, His redemptive work, 
and, and, and his love of mankind. Why does he say, for God so loved the world? Because I want to ask you this morning, if we know who belonged to Caesar because of the image of Caesar, and we know who belongs to God because of the image of God, who bears the image of God according to Genesis chapter 1? How were we created? All of us, saved and unsaved, how were we, how do we know who's we, who we belong to? We were created how? In His image, every man, woman, boy or girl on the face of the earth was created in the image of God. His image is stamped on mankind and all of mankind was designed to be the expressed image of the Father. Now again, I'm not trying to tell you that everyone is saved. That's still an individual choice to believe that which God has already done. But I want to tell you this morning that you and I were on God's heart. You and I were on God's mind in the moment of that creation because he stamped us with his image. Now I want us to understand what that means. We, by his design, were to be the bearers of his image on the earth here and right now. Why do we need to be power assisted? Because I would like for you and I to ask this question. How in the world can I display the image of God without God, God's image stamped on me? How can I live this image of God if God doesn't reside in me? Now this would be very easy if there had never been sin. If there had never been sin, then everyone absolutely would cover, would carry this image. But we understand that there is an enemy. But I hope this morning, and I hope there's no confusion, we have been bought with a price. That is scriptural truth. We are not our own. That is scriptural truth. A believer today, bought with a price, we are not our own. God has a righteous claim on you. Now, we may not like that in, in our modern day terms of independence and separation and everybody gets to do what they want, but the reality is that it was his blood it was his life he laid down, his blood that was shed for our sins. It was his sacrifice. It was his suffering. It was his resurrection. It was his life now in us. That is the transforming power of God. He has a righteous claim on you. If you're going to bear his name, he has a righteous claim on you and he wants you to bear his image. I'm not talking religion. I'm not talking about a denomination. I'm talking about each day where we go, everywhere we go, that the Spirit of God goes with us. He lives in us. He uses these hands so they become instruments of kindness, of love, remembering how were Adam and Eve before sin? They were completely other-centered. They had no awareness of self. Isn't that amazing? 
How could they go about the garden the way they were? Because they had no awareness of self. But when they sinned, it says their eyes were open. They saw something they'd never seen before. They saw themselves and realized they were naked and sought to clothe themselves. But you and I now, by the blood of Jesus, have been reconciled. That sin that created that separation has now been dealt with. So we get to now be restored back to that pre-existent condition where we now, once again, as children of God, are all are restored to being other-centered. These hands are his hands to work with. This is his mouth to speak with. These are his ears to hear with. How do I know that? Because he bought me, paid for me by his blood. He has a righteous claim on me. We resist that. We don't like those kind of terms, but the terms are true. I can't remove them out of the book. I can't remove them as truth. He's restored us. Why does this matter? Because we have a world that's sharp and harsh and edgy and cruel and vicious, unkind even in words and deeds. And God's saying, but I did not do that because I, I came so that by your image, they would see me and know my heart and know that I love them, that I love them so much because what I want to do, I can't do without them. I want to transform the world into peace. I want there to be real joy. I want there to be real truth. I want there to be real love, real kindness. Not the artificial stuff we pass out, but the stuff that he placed in us. He's trying to get us to be where we, by the very nature of our lives, be that expressed image. But we have a bit of a problem. Satan hates us because he hates him. He hates us because we were to be the bearers of God's image. So what do you think Satan would be all about? What would any enemy be about? Why was Caesar's picture on the coins? Because the previous army that had been defeated by the Romans, those coins were destroyed and, and, and reshaped into the image of Caesar. Why would Satan hate for us to be a bearer of God's image? Because he wants us to be the bearers of his image. See, it's not just to neutralize the image of God on us. It's so that our life would be his image. And we're not surprised by the tactic. He started it right from the beginning. When he was having the conversation with Eve in the garden, he started it in the very beginning. He said, right now you bear the image of God, but if I can just get you to believe me, to hear me, and to believe what I'm saying, then the image of God will begin to fade and the image of me, selfish and self-centered, will begin to appear. He absolutely desires to destroy that image in us so that none will ever see him in us. So he has this great desire and he has this wrecking ball that he loves to use. And, and we're not confused by the wrecking ball. We don't talk about it much anymore. It's kind of strange how little in, within church we actually talk about sin. He first showed that 
hammer, that wrecking ball to, to Eve and Adam in the garden. It's been the same ha hammer ever since. Before we were saved, the sin was those things that would absolutely seek to destroy us. It was fear, doubt, anger, bitterness, judgment, any kind of addiction, sex, drugs, anything you want to put on that list. And before we were saved, all he had to do was to, to, to get us to maintain that life. There would be no image of God. That's the original sin when Adam and Eve were first called sinners. But after we're saved, which is most in this room, after we're saved, the hammer still swings. It still swings the same, but now he knows he can't take our life. So the wrecking ball can't do the same thing. For those who are unsaved, his desire is to keep them that way. For those who are saved, he's trying to destroy the image of God in us and on us. How does he do it? First of all, he seeks to make us believe wrong things about our Father. He tries to get us to believe that our Father can't be trusted. He tries to get us to believe that somehow God isn't fair. He tries to get us to believe that somehow God is not close, that he's hard to reach, that he doesn't respond in our needs, and he doesn't respond the way we need him to. And do you think God's being, do you think Satan's being pretty successful with that hammer? Because I don't know many believers who have been believers for a little while or a long time that still actually trust God. They, they may trust him plus something else, but this simple trust in God, I don't know many. I, I know many who believe he's not fair. Because you can look at the inequities in life and say something is wrong in this picture. And the only one big enough to change this picture is God. Something is unfair. He isn't close. I can talk and he won't hear me. Unless he's Danny and he gets, calls Danny personally in moments like this. And I pray he doesn't answer. And when he answers, it's not what I wanted to hear. So Satan's very effective swinging that hammer, getting us to believe things about God that aren't true. But more especially, he seeks to make us believe wrong things about ourselves. This is where the real damage is done. Some in this room have experienced Unbelievable loss. Jan was reading, uh, showing me something a couple of days ago by Malcolm Gladwell. You, some of you may recognize that name, but he was, he was uh, raised as a believer, lost his way, didn't believe in God anymore. And then he heard the story of a, of a woman, a testimony of a woman who had suffered extreme loss at the, in, in the murder of her child. He heard the testimony and he said, everything that I ever wondered about God became true by the testimony of this woman who had lost so much and whose faith was so great. I tell you what, he's a good God. We, we may not recognize it every day. We may not want to see it, but he is a good God. We are worthy, but Satan tells us we're worthless. We are enough 
Satan tells us that we're enough without the Holy Spirit. Satan tells us that we are alone. Satan tells us that we don't matter. He tells us that life is too heavy. He tells us that, that there are things we can use instead of faith. And he offers us a false identity. He offers us bondage. He offers us chains. He offers us brokenness. That's what he offers. And with every swing of the hammer and our being unprepared for that, for that blow, he becomes more and more effective. And our views of God become more, become more questionable. Our thoughts about ourselves become worse and worse. I am still, still so amazed, and I'm not being critical of this, but I am still so amazed at how many people are on anxiety medications that I know. It's, I, I would venture to say 30 to 50% of everybody that I know is on some type of a medication trying to calm themselves and to remove the anxiety. Again, I'm not being critical. I've been on them myself. But it is amazing that if we would ever believe who God really is and really know who God says we are, that I am His child, that I am fearfully and wonderfully made, that I am a joint heir, a royal ambassador, if I would simply believe those things about him and those things that he has said about me, the possible calm that can come over my life. So how do we fight back? I'm going to give you a very quick answer. The first thing we do in fighting back is recognize that this is Satan's tactic. He's trying to destroy our image of God. He's trying to destroy our image of ourselves. I meet with people every week, all ages, all, all groups, all different problems and questions. Some enormous, some questions so big, some problems so big that I sit back here in my office in my prayer moment by moment is, God, I'm glad you're bigger. Greater is he that is in me than he that's in the world because it looks right now that the world is kicking somebody's tail. And I'm glad to know, Father, that you remind me regularly that you're bigger than any challenge, any problem that, that will sit down in front of me because right now it doesn't look that way, Father, because this problem is so big. We recognize the tactic. We recognize the scheme. Second, we believe and we receive that we have been bought and are not our own. What difference does that make? If I know who I belong to, if I know the price he paid for me, if I know what I'm worth, I ask this question. You've heard me say it before. There's a pickup out there that I'm making payments on. When I drove it off the lot, I know what it was worth. It was worth what I paid for it. What are you worth? You're worth what he paid for you. What did he pay? The price of what? One son. You want to know how, how you stand in his heart? 
You want to know what he paid for you? He paid the price of his only begotten son for you. Imagine you doing that for anyone. Laying down the life of your child. The third, we believe and know that we were designed to reveal the image of God in our lives each day. And again, I'm not talking about religion. I'm not talking about following rules. I'm talking about a God indwelling us and Him taking these hands, Him taking these feet, Him taking this voice, Him taking this mind, taking these ears, because He now lives in me. Remember, please remember the picture of the balloons. Two balloons, same package. Blow one of them up with air from my lungs. What I'm capable of, tie a knot in it, hold it out. It's going to drop to the floor. Take the other balloon, fill it full of helium, tie a knot in it, hold it out. It's going to go to the ceiling. Why? Because the balloon only had the capability of putting on display that which was in it. If the Holy Spirit lives in me, now indwells me, what I will do will look more like Him than than looks like me. And I'm so grateful to God that He's designed us so that we would have to be power assisted. That's number four. Recognize that we cannot function under human effort. We are required to function under a design that says I'm required to be power assisted. But there's real good news because Jesus has already come. The Holy Spirit has already been given. I am not doing without. I don't have that question. I don't have to move in that uncertainty because Jesus has come. I read it. I see it. And we live it. Jesus has come into our life. Please remember when he was calling for Adam, Adam, where are you? Valton, where are you? Danny, where are you? He's not saying, guys, I know you can't make it without me. He's saying, guys, I can't make it without you. I've got a purpose that is that is all designed to flow through us, mankind. Can't make it without you. Why does he pursue us when we're broken? Why why does he love us when we're running? Because he has this on his heart. I want to display my image in you. I made you that way. I need you to. Because we look around right now and it's very hard to find the image of God anywhere. I can't change the world, but I can change one right here. And if he changed the world with 12, he can do it again. Father, thank you that you remind us of your heart, that you came to seek and to save that which was lost that you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten Son that whosoever would believe would not perish but have everlasting life. But Father, you also made us so that in the kindness that we show others each day, by the love we extend, by the words that we say of encouragement, by the compassion that we have for those whose hearts are broken, for the moves of kindness that you will show us as we enter into this next year, 
Father, thank you that you didn't ask us to do it alone, that we are not designed to do it under human effort. We're designed to do it with the assistance of your power. You promised in Acts chapter 1 to your disciples to go to Jerusalem and wait and that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them. We too have received that power because the Spirit was freely given to all who believe. Thank you, Father, that we get to spend by faith that power to watch lives be transformed, to see brokenness change to healing. Thank you, Father, that we get to witness it here in this room, in my office, in restaurants in Lubbock, in coffee shops, in Walmart, everywhere we go, we get to watch this transformation of others because you have displayed your image on your children. Thank you, Father. You've made it very simple. Christ in us, the Holy Spirit in us is the hope of glory. We're not confused, Father. Thank you that you make it this simple. Thank you for this message as you've revealed it. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message. For more resources, visit sundownchurch.com.